0: Hello, I'm Soumya Ariane. I'm the founder of the Think Tank for Women in Business and Technology and the FemPeak platform with the mission of raising women's socioeconomic status. In today's podcast, we have a very special guest. Warren Farrell is an author and a political scientist who has written extensively on gender issues. And he has recently co-authored a book called The Boy Crisis with John Gray, the author of the famous book, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. I discussed with Warren how we are to understand the differences of perspective in men and women and how we can better communicate and understand one another. It was a fascinating discussion and I hope you enjoy it too. So here's my conversation with Warren Farrell.
1: The reason why I started FEMP was because uh, in addition to the fact that I wrote a book, um, which made me realize uh, a lot of the jobs that were being affected were those of women's, um, especially you know around technology. Uh, but in addition to that, also, I went through a breakup where I had to choose between my career and a relationship, um, and it was a difficult decision to make. I realized that there were, I was not alone. There were a lot of women who uh, had to make that choice, and usually they would choose the family, um, you know. And I, I made uh, the choice, you know, uh, to to focus on on my passion. Um, so I thought this was a such an easy conversation because it's such it's something that's kind of very close to my heart. And I thought it would be fascinating to just have a conversation like two friends with, right? Um, I know that you worked with John Gray, you guys wrote uh, one of your books, you wrote together, right? I, I, I really like him. He is, uh, yeah, he's is, yeah, it's fascinating, the, the whole concept of men are from Mars, uh, women are from Venus. So are men from Mars and women from Venus?
2: <laughs> men and women are from Mars and Venus on one level and they're not on another level. And so, uh, you know, John and I um, disagree on the part where they're not. Um, and so, for example, um, you know, the, the, there, there are biological differences that have been you know, probably epigenetically um, transferred from generation to generation um, and, and those, one of those differences, for example, um, is that, um, that in all insects, animals, animals, insects are technically animals, but in, throughout the entire animal kingdom, including with human beings, um, almost always the, um, the, uh, the female will seek to reproduce with the alpha male. And, um, and so uh, you see this um, with, um, in so many ways. So, for example, even among buck elks, for example, uh, the female will, 85% of all reproduction will be with the alpha male. And that alpha male will, um, for the buck elk, um, is the one that has the biggest rack. Um, But to get that biggest rack, there is a need for that buck elk to uh, use um, 30% of its minerals, calcium, and um, nutrients. And so, therefore, to to do what makes it alpha, it actually becomes, in the process, the best protector for the female, but is actually the weakest then of all the buck elks because it's exhausted its, um, all its minerals and calcium and nutrients. So therefore the buck elk has to get rid of its rack immediately after um, it, it, is, um, it reproduces. Otherwise it has a strong risk of dying before the winter sets in and if it cannot replenish its nutrients and minerals. And that is really the uh, perfect metaphor for what masculinity is. Um, it's it is what makes you attractive to a female, but it's also what makes you the weakest, even as you appear the strongest. That is, you get the tool to be able to. So, uh, and it's what I what I get from that is uh, uh, the way I put it in brief is that men's weakness is our facade of strength. So we uh, we we learn to sort of appear very strong uh, and cover up the weaknesses that we have because we know that if we are an officer and a gentleman, we're far more likely to get um, women's love than if we are a private and a pacifist. And we we learn and see all around us the cues of Lois Lane falling in love with uh, Superman, but having no interest in Clark Kent um, uh, Clark Kent was the touchy, the feely, the sensitive one, um, but once she felt realized that he was Superman, then different story, she falls in love, and then she credits herself with encouraging Superman to express tears and be able to cry and feels that she's made an emo- a contribution for him to be able to be emotionally expressive, which she has, but doesn't look at the fact that she had no interest in him when he was emotionally expressive as Clark Kent, and this is what you know men see all around them is the feeling that if they don't pretend to be strong and to have the answer to the problem that they are not loved um they're on the football in the United States we play you know football and and rugby is your sort of equivalent and the um and but you know football is basically the cheerleader is cheering for. Uh, the man to be willing to risk concussions and spinal cord injuries in order to get the, this piece of leather across the goal line. And if he does, she says, you know, first and 10, do it again. Uh, that is, first and 10, risk the concussion again, risk the spinal cord injury again. And he realizes that if he does do that, uh, the cheerleader will continue cheering for him. Um, but if he doesn't do that, if he fails, um, he the cheerleader will still continue cheering, but she'll cheer for his replaceable part. Um, and some other person in uniform, number seven, who is now um, able to you know, catch the pass or toss the pass and risk that concussion or spinal cord injury. So the signals to men all over the place are that, you know, that women uh, want men who are caring, expressive, loving, and, um, but... They only want them within the framework of the men who are able to be good performers, who are able to succeed. Um, And then, but but without anyone understanding, including men not understanding, that the process it takes to become successful at work is often in tension with the process that it takes to become successful in love. So for example, if you're, if I'm at work and you're approaching me um, uh, and you're an engineer and I'm at Boeing aircraft, let's say, you have this greatest new engine. And I'm thinking, you know, it's perfectly appropriate for me as a CEO uh, to be thinking while you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, okay, is this the best engine out there? Who are the other people I need to check with to make sure it is? What type of credibility does this woman have? If it it is the best engine out there, how am I going to integrate this into our Chinese um, infrastructure? And I'm thinking about all these things while you are making your presentation. That's a sign of a good CEO. But if, if you're my wife and you are saying I had a tough day at work and with the you know with my, my work at Boeing and whatever, um, and I say you know and I'm and I'm solving your problem while you're talking, you don't feel heard by me, you don't feel listened to me, you don't feel empathized with me. Um, and so the very qualities that it took for me to become successful as a CEO. Were, were in tension with, often the opposite of the qualities that it took me to be successful as a loved one. And, um, and if we had children, then it would be the same thing with the children. The children would really, first, they'd want me to hear them. And then secondly, they'd maybe maybe have an interest in, the, uh, in my having some solutions. But most, for the most part, the hearing of somebody we love is the solution. Men do not learn that when I'm working with CEOs, I have to basically, um, you know, they, they, they say their, their attitude is, my wife has just had a problem. That's for me, like seeing my wife um, bleeding. And Warren, from my perspective, if I don't take out a, um, um, a Band-Aids and cover up that bleeding, uh, so she's no longer bleeding, I'm not loving her. And I go, well, the, the way to love her, the way, to, the way to put that Band-Aid on is merely to hear her. That CEO, sir, is the solution, the hearing. Now, she may later ask you for, well, what are your ideas about a solution? And the, the, even then, when I'm at my best as a husband, uh, my wife owns a, a PR firm, and she asked me for the solution. I say, uh, before, when I'm at my best, I listen usually for about an hour or so first, And I have many ideas that I think will be able to be a solution, but I keep reminding myself that the best solution is just listening. And it is invariable how relieved she feels just from um, being able to say what what is on her mind and get it all undone. And then um, I don't know this next step. I don't always do. But she'll say to me sometimes, well, do you have any thoughts about that? And oftentimes I'll add my thoughts, but what I'm most successful is when I don't say add my thoughts right away, but I say, well, first, I'll be happy to add my thoughts, only too happy to add them, But but first, do you have any thoughts about that? And usually she will come up with them and she feels better about herself when she's both had a chance to process relieve herself of that uh, the spider web of conflictual feelings and tied up and pent up inside of her, Once she's relieved that, she's much clearer to have solutions of her own. And oftentimes, she comes up with solutions that are very similar to the ones I would have mentioned anyway. Um, and, so, and then a- after that, if she says, well, you have any thoughts on it? I invariably do. Um, but at that point, it is an appropriate time to add thoughts. Um, but not at the beginning of that process. And most successful CEOs or you know, men who are successful in general are so good at problem solving, but the problem they don't solve, the, the, uh, that they don't understand that the best way of solving the problem is listening to the problem.
1: Fascinating. This is really fascinating, mind-blowing stuff. So tell me about that book behind you. Um, what is that about? The book, uh, The Boy Cries. The boy- I know,
2: yeah, your new book. That's the book that John and I um, I, I wrote, basically the first um, 80% of it. And John is much more knowledgeable about things like ADHD and what types of nutri- and nutrition and so on uh, you need to have to be able to both prevent ADHD to begin with. You know,
1: with, I have ADHD. Then, I didn't
2: know that. Then that last of uh, five chapters that he wrote, are really good on that. John, I need you to know, get that people, book. Okay, people Amazing. get together with John. They, they are amazed that he wrote "Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus" because he's always talking about nutrition and uh, things that you don't associate him with. Um, but the um, but the, it's a really good uh, set of chapters on um, on reversing ADHD, um, which wow. is very without taking medications. The boy crisis itself. Is um, I, I was on the as you as you know as on the board of directors of the, of the National Organization for Women in New York City in the early part of my career, and I used to speak all around the world on women's issues. And you know, uh, and teachers would come up to me in Japan or someplace else and say, "You know, the kids that are having the most problems in my class are actually the boys." And so I started to uh, research that, and I found that in all fifty-three of the largest developed nations in the world. Um, boys were having significantly more problems on every academic subject uh, than girls were, but particularly in the area of reading and writing, which as you probably can guess, are the two biggest predictors of success or failure. And so I started to examine that and looked at the fact that, uh, and then began to see one disaster after another as to what was happening with boys. So I saw that um, boys, for example, um, were uh, when boys and girls, Are age nine, uh, they rarely commit suicide, but the boys commit suicide. um, And and, uh, but between the ages of 10 and 14, the boys were committing suicide at twice the rate of girls. Between the ages of 15 and 19, boys were committing suicide at four times the rate of girls. And between the ages of 20 and 25, five times the rate of girls. And so, and then, um, and then it leveled off to about four to one. For the rest of most of the rest of their lives and then as boys and girls became women and men and they reached their older years so for example at the age of 85 um, um, men are 1750 percent more likely to commit suicide than their female Um. counterpart the fascinating thing about that was not just that enormous disparity but the fact that nobody talked about it, nobody knew about it. Um, And so, you know, I had to start asking myself, you know, why, you know, what it is, you know, what were the causes of the boy crisis? And I saw that, um, I I presented to my publisher, I said, you know, I think the boy crisis has 10 10 major causes. And it was approved for, you know, for me to go from proposal to manuscript. And then as I started researching for 14 years, what was causing the boy crisis, I found that there were there were about ten causes, but by far and away the most important cause was dad deprivation, and the, that the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside. So, for example, when a boy grows up in a family where there's a um, only, um, predom- only a mother taking care of the, of the boy, um, and um, and he goes from Uh, the mother-only home to a female-only school, female teacher-only school, he's very vulnerable to having no constructive male role model and therefore being seduced by a gang leader who says, hey, you join, in a sense, join this family. We're somebody who will give you a good rep um, and you'll really be respected and people will be looking up to you. Um, but the boy usually ends up, when he is in an all-female home, not being very motivated to succeed, and I wondered why. I'll get into that in a moment. He then starts getting looking for easy ways to be, succeed. So a drug dealer says, you know, listen, I know you're not productive in school, you know, I know you're failing out, um, but you don't need to worry. You can sell drugs and make money quick and easy. Uh, no, no No big worry here. And so he's seduced by that attraction to earning easy money because he has not learned postponed gratification. And so then I started asking myself, well, what is there about father involvement that seems to lead to boys being much, and girls, by the way, also, boys and girls being much more likely to have postponed gratification when they had uh, checks and balance parenting, that is the parenting of both the mother and the father in proper tension with each other. Then I began to investigate uh, what are the nine differences between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting that led to children being parented by both parents being so much more successful. And then I began that the children who were parented by both parents and then they went to a female teacher only school in elementary school. That was not as good as if they went to a school that had male role models, but it wasn't disastrous. It wasn't a big thing. It was uh, statistically speaking, the the difference was minimal. Um, So I started to see that more, while male teachers were very important for children who didn't have good male role models on um, growing up, but particularly good biological dads being involved with their, them, um, that w- male teachers were extremely important um, as good male, constructive male role models. Um, but if the if the fa- if the father and the mother were both working in the family together and actively involved with the family, then the children um, didn't the the lack of male teachers was not such a big difference so i began to see that the the dad involvement was more important than the male teacher involvement and that was just the beginning of a whole series of understandings about you know what is there that dads do that uh, are so misunderstood. Like rough housing appears to just be a dad playing with the children. Um, and you know, it seems like the father is just one more child himself. And, and it worries the mother that the father's being irresponsible because the children will get hurt. And you know, usually about you know the mother's right about 99 percent of the time uh, the children do get hurt, but she doesn't realize, nor does the father realize or articulate to the mother why he still continues doing the rough housing. What's, you know, what are the unconscious things he tends, dads tend to do that lead to children who do roughhousing with their brothers and sisters and other um, kids in the neighborhood having more empathy than children who don't. I mean, can you imagine a dad saying to uh, the mom, yeah, I want a roughhouse with the children so they have more empathy. Well, mm-hmm. almost nothing more counterintuitive than the connection between you know, roughhousing and empathy. But um, and so what, I, what I found that the, the boy crisis was necessary was to explain to dads what the data was, what the reasoning was that led to roughhousing in the way that most dads do it, leading to the children being more empathetic and to the okay. children having, having more social skills and for the children having more postponed gratification.
1: What do you see is the relationship between the boy crisis and its impact on women, because uh, obviously this is all interconnected, right? So that yeah. has a knock-on effect, right? So that's one question. Yeah. Let, let's park that for a second, because I, the next question I want to ask, I feel like they're kind of re- relevant, uh, related to each other. We uh, I often hear people say, oh, women are emotional, women are not as emotionally stable you know that they have you know a lot of up and down but when we look at the statistics like you just mentioned uh the level of suicide is a lot higher in men these two things don't really balance each other out because it yeah. seems like on the one hand you're saying that women are not emotionally stable on the other hand women seem to be Living longer and they're less prone to suicide. So, what's the discrepancy here?
2: Well, first of all, I would never say women are not emotionally stable, but the uh, but, but the people in general say those two things, and I think you're 100% right in pointing out the cog- the cognitive dissonance there. If <laughs> if women mm-hmm. are so emotional stable? Why are we li- they living longer? Why are they healthier in general? And so on. And, and here's, here's some thoughts on that. First of all, the larger picture that you've mentioned in your first question. Um, yes, we are all in the same family boat. When only one sex wins, both sexes lose. Um, and so there's, there's um, and, and that's one of the reasons why all my life, you know, even when I was on the board of the National Organization for Women in New York City, I would never say, I never wanted a women's movement blaming men. I never wanted a men's movement to be blaming women. Um, I wanted a gender liberation movement to liberate both sexes from the rigid roles of the past to more um, to more free roles for the future. And when when women, when boys, when we pay attention to boys and boys' um, health and mental health, um, I know no woman who is heterosexual who wants a children. That goes around looking for a boy who's mentally unhealthy, who's on the impl- unemployment line, who's living in his family's basement. Um, you know, the the degree to which we produce healthy, emotionally healthy, and financially productive um, men and men is the degree to which we serve women. Um, and so, and so that means so many things have to be questioned. What I just said, almost everybody would agree with. But let's take that to the more controversial level. Um, People um, often say, hashtag me too, really great. I 100% agree, but something's missing. Hashtag me too encourages women to get in touch with their feelings about what has happened with them in the past, to be able to feel comfortable expressing them and not shamed and humiliated expressing them. Is that good? 100%, but maybe 99%. There's something missing. And what's missing is we must never have A hashtag me too monologue. We must always have a hashtag me too dialogue. Because if men are not, if part of the male problem that creates toxic masculinity is repressing feelings, and then we're not saying, Men, I'd like to hear your perspective. We're just encouraging toxic masculinity. We're encouraging the continuation of men repressing their feelings like they always have. We've always had historically a battle of the sexes, but more in the, in the last half century, we have really not had a battle of the sexes, we really had a war in which only one side has shown up and men have put their heads in the sand and hoped the bullets would miss. This is extremely dangerous for women and it's extremely dangerous for women for a number of reasons. Um, let's Let's go into the workplace and the workplace is filled with men who, you know, part of what men learn to do as we're growing up is to, um, is the the commerce of masculinity, is the trading of wit covered put-downs. So if I have a guy at work, when he first comes to work, um, and I don't have much, you know, reason to respect him or trust him, I'll be, you know, very polite and fragile with him and careful with him. But as I get to trust him, particularly if I'm in a hazardous profession, I'll start joking with him. And then, you know, if um, maybe start teasing him. If he's looking at me and I've come, I'm a firefighter and I'm dressed like this, you know, he'll call me some type of pansy. And then I'll call him, you know, uh, well, that would be, that, you know, that would be really appropriate uh, comment from a short guy. Um, and then he would, you know, back and forth. And so what we're doing there with each other is beginning to test each other as to whether we can both um, handle criticism and both um, play with each other, whether or we're both super sensitive and and um, and and um, fearful because. If I'm a firefighter and the, the the roof is falling in, I don't want a super sensitive person out there, um, you know, afraid afraid of coming in and um, and rescuing me. I want somebody who um, who I sense intuitively if they can laugh at themselves and not treat themselves so seriously, then they're more likely to risk their life. Now, take that same behavior pattern, uh, the trading of wood-covered put-downs and, and, and transfer that over to a female at work um, in a corporation. And um, a guy comes in and says, oh, you know, your shirt really looks like you're, um, uh, you're more a man than a woman. I, have, I see her having the man button-up shirt. And he starts teasing. Now, he would only start that teasing and comment when he began to trust the woman enough to respect that she could handle it. but. If her response is to report to have her experience of that of being teased like that, is this is a hostile environment and this is this guy really doesn't respect me? This is an example of discrimination against women. I'm going to report it to HR, and HR becomes not HR but HER, uh, only hearing the complaints from the her in hers in the organization, um, and and um, and doesn't get the, the two of them to dialogue, but rather takes her complaint and makes it a demotion for the man or fires the man or um, without hearing from the man and what his best intent was we've missed an enormous opportunity and the opportunity we've missed is for hr to be able to say okay you know this is the way this woman experienced your comment and your put what she experienced as a put down and for him to be able to say actually this was not a sign of a put down this was a sign of increased respect for her and then the female goes oh wow, I never understood that that was your best intent, uh, was to that you were beginning to do the same thing with me that you do with men uh, that you respect. Uh, okay, I didn't know that. Or she might say, it still feels badly to me. Um, and the guy goes, okay, I get that. Uh, but here's the price that, um, that you pay when <clears throat> I can't play with you this way. And, um, and, then, and so the dialogue continues, who's right? both people are right. Um, And that's what hashtag MeToo has to be, is that type of hashtag MeToo dialogue, where we're hearing, because if we're not hearing from men, what happens in that workplace is that um, every single CEO I have spoken to since hashtag MeToo comes out, this is not a single exception, says they would no longer mentor a woman, uh, because they're, especially, they feel more strongly about this if they have a wife and children. Because they don't, because with a wife and children, they don't the, the 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 damage that could be done to their career would not just be to their career, it would be to their their marriage, to their being able to provide for their children and their and their wife. And no single woman is worth risking their wife and children's well-being um, as well as their own career and reputation for. Her. And so men are just beginning to, to fear this, despite the fact that most people don't know that on average, as Cynthia Epstein um, showed a number of years ago, that uh, when there's females above a woman at work and there's males above a woman at work, the male is more likely to be willing to mentor the woman and mentor that woman successfully, uh, even when there's equal numbers of females at that same position at work. Um, the, and so the, women are, are, are the fear of women is, create, is working against women, it's making us lose respect um, and so we, we need to have that. That dialogue, though, would help women say, okay, men say, okay, if there is a misunderstanding and it goes to HR, I'll be heard and she'll be heard. And, the, and what HR will facilitate is making sure I hear her non-defensively and she hears me non-defensively. And the outcome will potentially be both of us getting a deeper understanding of how to be heard, and therefore both of us may be being more likely to get promoted in the future because our emotional skills have increased rather than decreased as a result of this um, call it, being called to our attention. Does, does that all make sense?
1: Yeah, it's definitely very,
2: very interesting.
1: And it's really good to hear that uh, other perspective. Although my personal experiences with things like that has been a little bit different from you know the case of uh, you know from what you said it's clearly like the person is trying to make a lighthearted joke right but um I've, I've been in situations where i've literally been made to feel you know like for example and not not for investors for, for Peak, but for another company that i invested in i remember like being at a dinner with Uh, some um, investors that were all white males in their fifties comments were passed that made me feel like I didn't belong there, you know, and I kind of felt like I wasn't being treated the same way as the other uh, investors uh, just because I didn't look like them, you know, just even though my level of investment was actually Higher than actually one of them. And I still felt like, you know, I wasn't being taken seriously. It was a good example of seeing, this is why women don't go to do those things. You know, that's why, and then they get left out. You know, they get left behind, uh, you know, th- because those are places, those, those drinks, those dinners are where bonds are made between people who do deals, who create, you know, who, who uh, create businesses together. And women don't go to those things. They, they are not present there because of some of these, uh, you know, types of... Uh, uh, and, it, and, and the less we have women, the one or two that are there are going to increasingly feel, um, you, you know, that, and then one, one little comment like that, you know, it makes you feel like they just see me as a piece of meat, not as an equal, you know, Partner. That is the reality. You know, these things that still do exist. I see where you're coming from when you talk about that people become oversensitive and you can't have a conversation. I can see that happening. But at the same time, you know, it is true. Uh, it, it's definitely something that I have experienced where there's been men, even, you know, throughout my education, it's been men, even in academia, where they have used their power. To put you in a position to push you in a corner to, to make you feel like you would have to give them a certain kind of attention, you know, to uh, so that uh, to satisfy a level of, of attention to them, you know, um, to, to get by. You know, when you're a student, imagine like you, you're a female student coming from another country, right? And you're, you know, you're in a vulnerable position in relation okay. to a male professor who is comfortable position in, in there. And, and this was like, these are like some of the examples I'm giving from my own life, right? And the truth is that it's only the last few years that we've had the hashtag me Too conversation for many, many years, people like, you know, Weinstein, you know, the, these, are, these things are real, they do happen. And I have experienced them personally, you know whether in the workplace, whether in academia, Um, They do happen. So I don't know what the answer is. Um, I think you are right. It needs to be a dialogue for sure. It needs to be a dialogue. It it can't be just, but, but also like, you know, I have been with ex-partners where, for example, we are watching TV and, you know, the, partner who has been, say, for example, in media, right? And they they know some of the people that are on TV, uh, maybe on the news or on some other program, they know that person personally because they have worked with them, right? But the the comments they make about the women is so different. The woman is like, it's just a newsreader, right? And like another newsreader, like any other newsreader. But but when, when it comes to the woman, they're making a comment about their appearance, in a way that they wouldn't do about other person. So so that goes to show the mentality is there. And even if it's not in, even if that comment is not passed in person, just the fact that in front of me that has been said, I know that then that's in their mind when they are having that conversation. So I don't like, to use the term toxic masculinity. I don't know if it's toxic, but but the, uh, I, I mean I don't I don't know the juxtaposition of those two things together if it's a good thing but toxic, but there is a level of toxicity there for sure. You know I really consider myself a I think that I'm a pretty open-minded person and I always would like to hear both sides but I but I know what I have felt. Mm -hmm. Right. And I know the positions that I have been put into by people who have had power um, putting me under pressure, you know, because of uh, being a younger woman, you know, looking a certain way that maybe doesn't fit into what their image is of, you know, what you should be in business or in uh, in academia or any other thing. So, so yeah. these things do happen, unfortunately.
2: But yes, and if I were with a man who said, those things don't happen, she's just making it up, um, I would just, my, my answer would be, just listen. This is her life, this is her experience, this is what she's going through, this is what she's dealing with. If you care, if you pretend to be human, if you uh, you have emotional intelligence, you will hear what she is saying and what what she's feeling um, and At the same time, having worked with 300 men's groups um, and, you know, men as well as women for um, all my 50 years or so of working in this area, um, I also know that there is a a male way of looking at that as well. uh, That has not been, that is is completely unheard in the culture and um, and that what is needed is, but that no male that I know will risk speaking up about what that way is. Uh, because he'll feel he feels like he'll only get himself in deeper and deeper trouble, and whatever ignorances he had, appear, he appeared to have ten minutes ago, will only be magnified when he starts speaking up about the way he looks. At
0: okay, it. And, and so
2: okay, so what is that? A couple of ways of framing it. Maybe the the easiest fast start is, um, let's say a man is um, um, a full time dad and he is at home taking care of his children and um and it's during the week uh day not the weekend and so he takes his children out to the park um and he um and some some of the women who are taking care of their children are looking at him and just trying to size up the situation, and they don't invite him over to join his um, their conversation. Um, but they begin, but but he feels the energy of their sizing him up to see whether he's maybe a um, a pervert or maybe he has the children sitting on his lap. So I just testified in court um, yesterday, actually, um, about um, the uh, for a man. Whose, whose wife was suing him because um his four three at that time three-year-old um son uh, was sitting on his lap and he was massaging his back and his then his wife interpreted that as being a pervert um to their to, to their son and so and that was being held up in court and the reason that he hadn't seen his son for the last year so then the male begins to come over and tries to sort of uh, enter into the group and doesn't feel like he's uh, accepted in that group. He feels like he's always being judged and marginalized and, um, and that, you know, whereas a, a, another female, uh, or if he was with a woman um, um, at the same time, then all those questions would not be asked. And so that the only way he's legitimate as a father um, is um, by, by those, um, uh, by his um, ha- appearing with the female. Um, but alone, he is under suspicion. And so then that male goes home feeling that sort of negative energy and his wife maybe doesn't understand that because she's never had that experience of being rejected by the women that are talking in a group in the park. But in addition to that, you know, he says, well, you know, sweetie, do you respect me? And she, you know, for, you know, I'm not earning any significant money. Um, I may be working at about 90% of full-time dads do do some work at, at, out of the home, but they usually don't make as much as the full-time moms do, uh, full-time working moms uh, do. And the mom says, yeah, sweetie, I respect you a lot. I, you're making a great contribution, but they go to a party. And at that party, the man who's a full-time dad sees the woman really looking up and flirting with that maybe the CEO, maybe the inventor, maybe the famous person at the party. And so he begins to feel like, uh, gee, you know, uh, I'm being told that I'm respected uh, for being a full-time dad, but I see my wife flirting with the guys at that party who are really successful. And I'm fearing that she doesn't respect me as much. And we know um, that that the marriages that succeed where a man is full-time dad um, are the ones where the woman has a lot of respect for the man. But we also know that many women don't even realize when they are showing the signs of disrespect in the same way that many men didn't realize they were showing signs of disrespect in in what you picked up from that. Let's say that male is an elementary school teacher. And he enters as an elementary school teacher, um, an an atmosphere where the other teachers are saying uh, in class, you know, the future is female. They're trying to encourage their students to really, you know, um, understand that you go, women go, empower women. And he makes some type of comment like, you know, gee, that you know, the we have Jimmy and the kids, the boys in our class are doing worse than the girls are in the class, and we're saying the future is female. This is not encouraging boys. Uh, to look out for the future, uh, to, to feel encouraged about the future of themselves. And the women go, you know, what are you, anti-women? Uh, are you misogynist? And he learns from that type of response that he gets, that he better never shut, he, you know, if he wanted to, you know, get tenure in that school or, or just get along with the 90% of female faculty, he better just shut his mouth. And he, and he does shut his mouth and he puts his head in the sand, which we rem- remember is already a male problem, is shutting one's mouth about feelings because you know, talking about feeling, he knows inherently that women fall in love with those alpha men, not the non-alpha men, and that when a man complains, it seems like to a woman that he's whining, and wh- and women don't fall in love with whining men, they fall in love with the alpha men, and if he and whining feels to a woman like a man, uh, like a nail scratching on a chalkboard, it just doesn't feel right to you know to really have a respect for a whining man. He knows all that. He doesn't necessarily able. He doesn't usually articulate it. Partially because the great majority of men don't even know what their whole emotional um, web is, and so they have—they know that they're not won't be respected for sharing their weaknesses or their complaints or their fears or their feelings, and so they just learn don't go in your psyche where to a place where that will force you to make a decision between telling the truth and um, or and getting demoted or getting ridiculed, just don't go there. And then that becomes part of toxic masculinity. And so this is why, you know, these are just a couple of examples of why the dialogue is important. The, um, if we did a separate uh, interview I could go into the sexuality issue and what happens to men around um, sexual fears with beautiful women, but that really requires a deeper dive and not a, a few uh, not a few sound bites, if you will. If you can understand at the brief level the buck the buck elk, um, if you can under, get a just a quick image of what that buck elk did to get that big rack and how he was willing to sacrifice his life to get that big rack and how the officer and the gentleman is willing to sacrifice his life, rather than be a p- private and a pacifist, you get a quick clue of how men have been trained biologically and through socialization to be disposable, and disposable in order to get female love. Well, that is true what I just said, it is multiplied by a hundred times with a beautiful woman, and so the fear of men that they of not being loved by and being rejected by beautiful women is so deep and so unexpressed and so not understood in the culture. And it's as hard for anyone to understand who is not a man and that's heterosexual as it would be for a, a man to understand what the feelings are of being, um, of, of having the pains of childbirth. Um, or other, you know, or the, or the pains of being objectified as a woman in a, in a group of male investors, And it's so, but that's the way we need to walk in a mile in each other's moccasins. That's the next evolutionary shift. That is real feminism. That is empowering women. That is increasing mm-hmm. the respect for women. And that is increasing the love that will support our children um, in a way of being more empowered to communicate with each other for the next generation, if we want our children to be able to move there.
1: This is interesting. See, nobody ever explains it this way. You know, it it just makes you um, think about things in a a completely different way. I think we need more of these kinds of conversations. Nobody has ever explained it to me quite that way. Um, Tell me about, let's talk about the power struggle. Is the power struggle between men and women unavoidable? you know what I'm trying to get at is it's like you know how you said about so women tend to be attracted to the alpha male right I consider myself an alpha female but I like an alpha male like, right I, I, I don't think I wouldn't enjoy being with somebody who is not equally uh alpha you know <laughs> whatever that means you know to, to me alpha means like you know they're like signs right like for example i like a man who can command a room you know who can have presence right charisma but i have those things as well right i can command the room i have charisma and i want a man who can who have all has all of those things and is not intimidated by me having them too and uh that usually doesn't happen like most of the time there's like Uh, you know, I'm a Nietzschean, I studied philosophy, Uh, I I consider myself a Nietzschean, you know, I love Nietzsche, Uh, and you know, Nietzsche didn't uh, exactly have a a successful love life, but um, (laughs) one of the things that he talks about quite a lot is that the, uh, the, you know, the will to power, right, that all of life is the expression of power, and I just wonder, is it necessary that one sex prevails over the other uh, or is it possible to have a future uh, generation uh, you know the future of humanity in a way that they both express their power and they mm-hmm. you know i think there can be like a little bit of a dance there where there are some areas that i'm better and the other person is a little bit better but but like on the whole it's like pretty much 50 50 but um Is the power struggle necessary for society to continue? uh, or, Or can we get beyond the power struggle?
2: It starts with redefining power. Power is control over one's own life. So I wrote a book called The Myth of Male Power. Now, that doesn't seem to be possible to be a myth, because when we look at power in its normally defined ways, we look at it as people at the top of a corporate ladder, the top of a business ladder, the top of the religious ladder. And in all the tops of those corporate business religious ladders, there are males in, in, in dominance. Now, if we look at power as the way men experience power, but not the way they look at it, the way they experience power is feeling obligated to earn money that someone else spends while they die sooner. But if I were to create a workshop for on female empowerment and say, okay, women, I'm going to teach you today how to feel obligated to earn money that someone else will spend in your family while you'll die sooner, every woman would be smart enough to go, wait a minute, that's not my definition of empowerment. And I'd say, if I said, well, what's your definition of power? Um, you'd probably end up, the women would come to the place of, of saying, well, my definition of power is either. Um, you know, getting to the top of a um, corporate ladder like men do. Or uh, my daughter feels very differently. She just wants to live a happy life. And my sister just wants to have children and raise them. Or my, uh, my niece, she just feels that happiness for her is, um, is being able to um, live like a hippie with another man who's like a hippie and not having children at all. And so we see, wait a minute, power, real power is not feeling obligated to climb that ladder. So the people, the only people that I know who really get this is, and this is just stage one of the answer to your question, is the, the millennials in, um, in Japan. In Japan, they have a word called Karoshi, K-A-R-O-S-H-I. Yeah, that they die of working hard. Death at the desk or death from overwork. Well, the millennials are questioning that definition of power. And so they have a game called kuroshi, And each person in that game gets a little Karoshi figure. And then the people in the game each compete to get their figure to the top of the corporate business or religious ladder as fast as possible. And they do various things in the game to get to the top of the ladder. And the person who gets to the top of the ladder first commits suicide, commits not in real life, but in the game. And the, the message that the millennials are get, in Japan are getting is that the typical thing that we call power in Japan mm-hmm. of climbing to the top of the ladder was making you lose your life as a person, making you lose your emotional life, making you lose your life as a human being. It is what we've thought of as male power is competing to get to the next level on a ladder. And the only way we valued you was as a human doing. So who are you? I am Dr. Warren Farrell, best-selling author of books like The Boy Crisis. I've just put on makeup. What was my makeup? My makeup was doctor. It was best-selling author of The Boy Crisis. Um, And so that is not me as a human being, but if I were to go to a party and meet an attractive woman, and I said, oh, I'm just writing, I love writing, I really experience it. And she said, oh, have you published anything? And I said, no, no, but someday I'd like to do that. That would be my, um, that's one thing. If I said, oh no, I have a number of New York Times bestsellers and a number of my books have been published all around the world. The experience, by I would anticipate a different experience um, of, of the way that she would look at me. Um, and so I learn. Um, so what, but what is happening for me? I'm not being asked, how happy are you? How fulfilled are you? Um, how emotionally intelligent are you, but rather How much have you taken this fantasy life of writing and actually done something with it that leads to success, fame, earning of money and that type of thing? And that's the beginning of the answer to the question about when there's a man in the room and you're looking for him to command, you're looking for a full human doing but not a full human being. And you're beginning to sort of do something that will undermine yourself and your ability to be a habitable woman in the deepest sense of the word.
1: Very interesting. Okay, we need to con- continue this conversation. I know you need to go today, so yes, let's talk about it more. Uh, so I'm going to put out this podcast, and and I'm going to get your book. And when I put out the podcast, I'm uh, I'm hoping that it's going to be on Audible, so I I listen to it. What I would love to do is maybe interview you and John together because it would be good to have a make like a round table right and get the different views because i i, I don't uh, i don't know uh, if i fully agree with uh, you know with the last uh, comment about the the command in the room right so i think it would be really fascinating to continue that conversation and to see the differences between yours and John's view. So if it's okay with you, I'll, I'll ask Lola to follow up and try and maybe uh, organize a slightly longer. Our audience is really growing. Now we have 30,000 women who have signed up so to our program. So it's really, it's, it's growing really nicely there, mostly in the UK and US as well. So great audience for your books. And um, yeah, I think they would really enjoy uh, that conversation because it's uh, one of the pillars of our, uh, what we're building is the family and relationship part. And we really yes. need to solve this problem, right? This, the problem I want to solve is like, okay, we are getting women to get become more successful, but as they become more successful, like myself, then they face challenges in their relationships. How do we yes. balance that?
2: Absolutely. I want women to be habitable women if they want to be that. And so we'll take, we'll take it from that. They Perfect. tease educational statement that I just said about the you know the commanding man, and um, and we'll take it to a, a deeper um, level. Unpack um, it. Yes, great, to, great to talk with you. Absolutely, uh, absolutely.
1: Take care. Thank you, Warren. <laughs> Cheers.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Warren Farrell. I would be curious to know how much of the discussion you agree or disagree with. Please remember. I'm doing my best to keep these conversations nuanced and open. So, even if you disagree with anything I say or my choices of guests, please simply drop me a line and share your feedback. There are always good intentions behind all of these, and we're learning together, and I'm always trying to get better. Finally, remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star rating and write a review. You can also find the full video of these conversations on my YouTube channel. Oh, and connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Clubhouse at Somi Ariane. Finally, if you're not yet a member of Fempeak, head over to fempeak.ai, register, and join a community that actively supports women's professional growth.